Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Bagman and Crouch. Today we will be discussing the personality traits of our title characters, the tension between Harry and Ron around financial privilege, and why Fred and George would ever decide to bet on the match in the way that they did. So once again, the start of this chapter uh, is right after the end of the last chapter, mm-hmm. where the portkey takes the group to a clearing in the woods, and when they land, they're directed by the wizards there to a campsite farther along. At the campsite, a muggle named Roberts, who's clearly the owner, checks them in and notes his bewilderment at having so many visitors all wearing such strange clothes. A wizard suddenly appears and immediately obliviates Mr. Roberts and then complains to Mr. Weasley about how often they've had to do this to Mr. Roberts in particular. Harry helps Mr. Weasley erect a pair of tents, which are magically enlarged on the inside to accommodate their large group. Then they send Ron, Harry, and Hermione off in search of water. As they walk through the campground, they see lots of ordinary wizarding families enjoying themselves and ministry officials running around trying to make everyone less conspicuous. In a section of campground filled with Ireland supporters, they bump into fellow Gryffindors Seamus Finnegan and Dean Thomas. Over at the Bulgarian section of the campground, all the tents are covered with posters of a scowling boy with heavy black eyebrows. Ron recognizes him as Victor Crumb, the seeker for Bulgaria. Back at the tent, the rest of the Weasleys turn up. Fred, George, Bill, Charlie, and Percy are all ready for lunch. They settle in to eat, and Ludo Bagman stops by. He's head of the Department of Magical Games and Sports, so he's in charge of the World Cup, and he was able to get Arthur and his family such great seats in the top box. Ludo asks if anyone wants to bet on the match, and the twins bet their entire savings that Ireland will win, but Victor Crumb will get the snitch. Ludo accepts the bet and says he'll give them excellent odds because it's such a long shot. Mr. Weasley asks Ludo about the missing witch in his department, Bertha Jorkins, but Ludo doesn't seem worried. An older man approaches the party, Barty Crouch, Percy Weasley's boss at the ministry. Mr. Crouch calls Percy Weatherby, and the twins lose it. Ludo starts dropping hints that some big event is coming after the Quidditch World Cup and references Hogwarts. As the day goes on, the excitement builds over the World Cup match, and the trio goes shopping. Harry spends a small fortune on a set of three omnioculars, binoculars that include magical replay, slowdown, play-by-play, etc., As dust settles and the time for the cup to start approaches, the group leaves the campsite and walks into the forest toward the stadium. So let's start by talking about our chapter-titled characters. So we have Agman and Crouch. Um, Right. So this is in the order that we meet them. We meet (laughs) Ludo Bagman first, and he seems like a very fun, kind of jovial, I think they describe him as jovial a lot, Um, kind of like a party boy, gambler Mm -hmm. kind of guy is what we get from... I mean, he he invites them to gamble, and he seems very, like, okay with breaking rules. Um, we know he's in the ministry, but it seems like maybe he could take some bribes or has some deals on the side. Um, you know, he probably does have debts, um, but he seems pretty fun. Yeah, I, I love the description of him. It's a powerfully built man gone slightly to seed. Yeah. Which I always thought was such a, a powerful image. Um, and they describe him many times as boyish looking. Yeah. Which to me summons an image of a person who um, still like tries to have like a youthful demeanor and mm-hmm. appearance, but is like his age is catching up with him 
And he's basically just trying to run away from that. Like, he wants to be young and, and still good at Quidditch Seems and all like stuff. Seems like an older frat boy, basically. Yeah, yeah. A guy who's who's never quite come to terms with the fact that he's no longer playing Quidditch, mm-hmm. you know? Like, he got a ministry position that's still, like, in sports, you know? He, he still wants to be in sports, but he mm-hmm. is too old to play. Um, yeah, and, and unfortunately, I feel like he's the kind of person, and politician in particular, who'd be very susceptible to corruption, especially something like bribery or blackmail, because of this sort of lifestyle that he has and this attitude toward rule-breaking, um, which, you know, some people would say, ah, oh, he's just having fun, you know, it's it's really nothing. Um, but he is kind of, like, flaunting his, uh, like, gambling habits in front of other people, and it's almost like it's not really um, just something that he does for fun. It's almost like it's an obsession or, or it's a compulsion to gamble, um, yeah, we don't... which seems like it might get him into trouble. Yeah, I mean, do we know that? Do we get confirmation of any of this later on? I don't remember. Yeah, it becomes a big plot point in this book that he is deep in gambling debt to a group of goblins. Oh, um, right. And then they start blackmailing him and, um, you know, basically threatening him. Uh, And then, like, a big, big plot point in this book is that he puts a huge bet on Harry to win the tournament. Right. um, Which is why he, like, tries to help Harry out. And, And this is, like, more of that characterization of him like he's not really afraid to break rules he doesn't really feel like it's wrong to break rules in any way and he feels like Um, they don't really apply to him yeah and he's fine with cheating like Mm -hmm. he really is he doesn't feel like it's wrong to cheat um and and that i think is an interesting characterization uh we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later on to barty crouch who's basically the polar opposite of ludo yeah for sure um i i love the way that they juxtapose the two characters in this chapter and and even in the chapter title itself um he's very very uptight grumpy old man uh he seems like he's getting on in years and he's like losing track of certain things about the world um he's maybe a little bit out of touch you know he's a very bureaucratic style politician he's very very rigid very focused on rules and regulations he doesn't know Percy's name, which is right. funny um, because Percy's been basically bragging about his boss um, to us and Non-stop. to Fred and George, especially like the whole time. So they're like losing it. They're laughing hysterically mm-hmm. because it's very funny. He's calling him Weatherby. Um, but that is also a really good characterization because the person who doesn't know their essentially personal assistant's name, mm-hmm. um, a boss, or like who doesn't care enough to correct that or anything is just you know a particular type of personality who is extremely in his own head extremely obsessed with like the things he hears about and then like very oblivious to other things i feel like there might be more to it than that actually i've thought a lot about this Mm. um there there were theories at the time and and that i still think are applicable now because they've never been debunked or disproven or anything but that there there are actually a couple other possibilities as to why he wouldn't know percy's name or the correct name um one of which is if Percy didn't tell him the right name oh, intentionally, intentionally because he doesn't want to be bogged down with the Arthur Weasley family connection. Oh, that's interesting. Because Crouch obviously knows Arthur. They, right. He comes and sits down and they talk. They all talk together. Right. So if Percy thought that he could advance his career more by using his name, oh, he would have. That actually seems like a very Percy thing to do. Um, so that's a possibility. And then another possibility is that um, uh, Crouch comes in and meets Percy for the first time and he says, it's Weatherby, Right. And Percy, who looks up to this man so much and mm. basically idolizes him, just says, yep, mm-hmm. that's it. And never corrects him and yeah. just decides, I'm going to live with, with him getting my name wrong every single time. And I'm going to be okay with that because I don't want to correct him. 
And either one, I think, is a pretty reasonable explanation, actually. But Barty Crouch is in his right mind during this time, or no? He... He is not under the Imperious Curse. Yeah, he's just getting old. Okay. In the timeline of events, he's not yet been Imperious. Okay. Because I think for a long time I sort of uh, read this as, like, looking back at this book that he was under the curse the whole time, and... But I think that you're right. That's not. But it's one of the only times we see him not under the curse. Yeah. Um. This and the events immediately after the cup, I think, are the only times that we ever see the real Barty Crouch mm-hmm. senior. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does seem. He's described as an old man. I we just picture him as very old and frail and like not able to. Yeah, I think he's described as being older. But not, I, I wouldn't say frail. I would say like like a senior politician, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like a Joe Biden type. <laughs> um, but but very rigid, you know, toothbrush mustache and uh, obsessed with the rules. So another important note in the conversation that the three ministers basically have is that um, Bertha Jorkins, who is in Ludo Bagman's department, mm-hmm. um, is asked like, what have you heard from Bertha? And he's just like, uh, you know, she just wanders off. Like, this is kind of the same thing we've been hearing every time she was mm-hmm. uh, mentioned is like, uh, she's just like kind of a loopy and like sometimes she goes away for a while. So like no one's worried about her. Um, yeah. it's, what's interesting in this moment is that Harry is here in this conversation and obviously like listening to the conversation, but we don't think that he remembers Bertha Jorkins, which is also the last time she was mentioned, he did not seem to register her so i think that that part was is just for us and we're supposed to assume that he really like completely forgot all the details like that after the dream i think he just remembers like yeah what happened but i don't think he necessarily remembers all the details of that conversation yeah he's not described as reacting at all to her name so i think you're right i think we're supposed to believe that he forgot about that completely um but if he were to recognize it it would be confirmation at least in part that what he saw was real Mm mm-hmm which would be good. Um, yeah, I, I think Bertha Jorkin's characterization sort of off screen is pretty interesting. People seem to have different ideas of who she is and, and why. Um, I think later on someone, maybe it's Dumbledore, um, says that like he, the Bertha he remembers. Oh, no, I think it's serious, actually. He's, he says like the Bertha Jorkins he remembers was like had a very good memory for gossip. She was mm. like a real gossip fiend, hmm. um, but that she wasn't like an idiot or anything. She she was like gullible, mm-hmm. um, and she really like liked other people a lot, but um, that she wasn't an idiot. So like this other characterization of her from like her boss Ludo Bagman as being like flaky mm-hmm. and and not reliable and like kind of an idiot is is strange. It doesn't really reflect what other characters say about yeah. her. We already talked a little bit about Percy in terms of the name and. Um, I did want to talk just about his embarrassment in general, like, in terms of um, what we know so far about him. So, mm-hmm. I guess, um, now I didn't think of those other possibilities. So, I guess we kind of went over those. Either way, he would be embarrassed because he would realize that, you know, he didn't envision this scenario happening. And yeah. be like, now I have to pretend that he doesn't know my name, even though I just told him the wrong name or whatever that scenario sure, would sure, be. Yeah. But in in the just straight up, like he gets his name wrong, you know, he's he must just have be so ashamed because he's been just hyping this up for so much, which is so funny because you know 
we're all making fun of Percy and he's so pompous about everything, but, um. Yeah, and he seems very almost pathetic in this scene because he's, like, crouched over, (laughs) crouched, he's crouched over, like, like, like a hunchback offering him tea and, uh, and Crouch is like, I don't, don't bother like, I couldn't yeah. care less about you. I'm having a discussion with real people right now. Yeah, so he must be truly, like, devastated, and, like, it's, you know, it, it's bad for him in this moment, even though it's yeah. played for comedy. It's very embarrassing, uh, and I think uh, this is a moment where Percy wants to redeem himself later um, and get some, uh, get a little bit of swagger back, I think, later on. Okay, the bet. We have to talk about this. Why do the twins mm-hmm. make this bet? Because I remember thinking about this and not understanding. And it still has always bothered me. So I know that they like to take risks and they're, you know, like, seem like they would be gamblers. But they also are now at this point starting a company. And yeah. they're we know that from, like, hindsight that later on, like, they're very good businessmen. And by the end of basically, like, this book, they already have a business happening. So... I feel like this is a really weird thing for them to do, to bet, like, basically all the money they had that they made from this whole time. Um, Yeah, this is essentially their life savings. And so, uh, you mentioned that there are some other theories about this. I was wondering, you know, did did they somehow get tipped off, which would mean the game was rigged somehow? Yeah, so this is a really weird, interesting interaction. The The reason for this, I feel is that the author needed to have some sort of scenario later on in the book where Fred and George were blackmailing Bagman. Right, um, right. And, and that they couldn't get their money from him that they deserved because they won their bet, um, and that he was brushing them off, and that there was this whole thing because there's like all this Bagman conspiracy stuff going on. Mm-hmm. He's helping Harry with the tournament. Why? Um, so there kind of has to be a reason for that whole interaction to be personalized for harry and then when he gives the twins his triwizard winnings at the end Mm -hmm. that's like the reason for that he's like well you never got your money from bagman Mm -hmm. so here you can have my money Mm -hmm. um that i won kind of like in part due to bagman's influence i guess Mm -hmm. um so i think the real reason for this bet is because the author needed to have ludo bagman be in debt to the twins in a big way because this is a lot of money that we're talking about he says he'll give them really good odds they bet something like 40 galleons worth of money. Um, so let's say he gives them 10 to 1 odds. You know, that's 400 galleons if they win. That's a lot of money, um, especially for a couple teenagers. Um, the fact is that I feel like, to me, the bet is really out of character for them. As you said, mm-hmm. like they're prospering businessmen. You know, they're, they're coming to their own. They have really good, like, it seems like, financial mm-hmm. knowledge. Like, the... the like, if you bet everything you have on a long shot, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're just pissing that money away. Yeah, and I, w- I could see them, like, making a small bet in this moment, yeah. right? But the fact that they say, like, this is all the money they have yeah. is, is they, a like, weird... They, like, empty their pockets. They take everything and they give it to him. Like, I almost wonder, like, why that detail even needed to be there. Because, like, what if they had just bet, you know... I think that's the part that makes it weird. If they had just said, like, they bet this much, but we assumed that they made a lot more money than that Mm -hmm. already, and then they were like, we want our money back, Ludo, like, that would have still happened. But the fact that they said it was all their life savings, it seems like a problem. I think that's that's also to set up Harry's act as being more... um, Generous at the end? Well, more generous, but also more, like, justified. 
Mm-hmm. Like if they bet half of their life savings and lost, like yeah, that's devastating. But it's not like we can't do anything now because we don't have any money. Right, devastating. Right. Like they get ripped off for everything they have, and mm-hmm. they get left with nothing. And Harry's like, okay, well, I don't need this money. You guys should take it. That's like a right. big deal at that point. So I think that's the real reason. But just to go back, like there are a couple of fan theories about why um, mm-hmm. the twins make the bet, and I think the most compelling ones are. Um, as you mentioned, A, they could know that the game is rigged, um, which would have to mean that the Irish and Bulgarian national teams are in on it, or Working at least together. Victor Crum is in on it. That would make the most sense to me. Which it's, I think that, like, that is pretty compelling and actually could have been a good storyline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that would make sense. Uh, and, and if this were, like, a darker, less children-oriented series, I think that mm-hmm. would be a, a, an interesting plot point. Like, um, the, nobody else knows, but Victor Crum was paid off. You know, he was paid a lot of money by the Malfoys or somebody else to, to wait to catch the snitch until Ireland are 160 points up or more. Yeah. Um, and, and like, you know, Bulgaria will catch the snitch, but lose and mm-hmm. Ireland will win. Like someone who wants to fix the match for Ireland basically mm-hmm. sets that up and the twins catch wind of it. Like that's a possible scenario. The other one is that the twins are time travelers. <laughs> so this was set up last book that mm-hmm. time traveling is possible. Um, so they could have like uh, yeah. waited until after the match, then gone back in time, told their previous selves what was going to happen, and then said, okay, now you know the outcome, you can bet everything you have on it, and you'll win for sure. But little did they know that Ludo Bagman isn't actually going to honor his bet with them. I mean, what I think, though, is like, I mean, I, I think that's also a little far-fetched, but I think we also just like know, like, how hard it was for Hermione to get a time turner. It's like... Yeah, they would have had to steal it, right? They would have to steal it. That would be kind of dramatic. Like, it seems like they're probably really regulated. So it's like, probably yeah. not. Um, no, they're just fun ideas. I, because yeah, Because the fact so is that this doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. And then it's never brought up again, except that they... Except in the context of their, them trying to get their money back. But yeah. it's not... Like, I feel like when I first read this chapter, or like, even when I read it now, I'm like... I expect the next sentence, the first sentence of the next chapter to be like, how did you know, Fred and George? That was so crazy. <laughs> right. like, no one ever like brings it up really. Why would you make that guess? Because like, I mean, I guess my thought in general is like, if it was a coincidence, which seems, I guess, what we're supposed to think, but it's crazy. It's like, is this a common Quidditch scenario? Is this something that people would have anticipated based on like the Quidditch stats of, you know, when people are like, mm-hmm. I think like this sports team's going to get this many things but like this player is going to like um you know throw this touchdown or like i don't know Mm -hmm. something like that yeah yeah no i mean i honestly think that what we're supposed to believe is that the twins basically just know that victor crumb is an incredible seeker he's definitely better than aiden lynch and he's probably going to catch the snitch but that ireland chasers are so good yeah that they will actually be able to win the game for Ireland, despite the fact that Bulgaria will catch the snitch. I think that's actually what we're supposed to believe. Yeah. But that no one really, no one really believes that that's going to happen because that is such a far-fetched scenario. Like when you're a seeker, your job is not to catch the snitch if your team is down by that much. Mm-hmm, right. Your job is to make sure that nobody else can catch the snitch either. Right. Um, so that the game continues until your team is within range of winning. Mm-hmm. Um, but Crum is so egotistical, or you know, or just you know, forlorn enough to believe that Bulgaria will never come back, that he just goes ahead and catches the snitch anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that scenario is pretty uncommon, I think. But but just the twins believe that that's going to happen and they bet all their money on it is yeah. a little bizarre. I mean, it really doesn't make sense and that's why it's interesting, but I think it's cool that there were some fan theories about this and mm-hmm. um, fun to think about. 
we have some nice um, setting up of, of some larger themes in this book with the omniocular purchase. Mm-hmm. So Ron immediately, when he sees how much money Harry is spending on this for him and Hermione, he's like, I don't want that. It's too much money. I, I can't accept yeah. that kind of a gift from you. Um, and Harry's response is like, I'm not going to get you anything for Christmas. Or like 10 Christmases. For about 10 years, yeah, yeah. mind. Um, so like we're square, basically. And this is really indicative of, I think, their relationship at this point. Like Ron is at the same time sort of insecure about money, but also like has very strong morals about it. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want charity. I'm very like comfortable with, with where I am financially. Right. And like, I don't want people to feel sorry for me and mm-hmm. feel like they have to buy me stuff. And Harry is like, I have all this money. I want to spend it on other people, including right. my friends. And like, I want to, I want you to have nice experiences because like, what else is it going to do? It's just going right. to sit there doing nothing. Um, so this comes to a head a lot. And especially in this book, this is a really huge point of tension between the two of them. Yeah. And it's also kind of interesting that Hermione doesn't seem to have this issue. Um, we don't really know a lot about Hermione's like financial state or like her parents financial state but they're both dentists so they're probably fine probably fine in terms of i and i guess that translates to wizarding money i mean it seems like she's obviously doesn't like have as much spending money or whatever as harry um or maybe she's just frugal with it i don't know i mean i I think she has parents that teach her about money and, Mm -hmm. and saving and things like that and harry doesn't so it's like harry just was poor his entire life until he inherited tons and tons of money and now he's just like money isn't real yeah i can do whatever i want kind of thing just so. like buys all the like pumpkin cakes or whatever yeah the like thing. the first thing he ever does with his money is buy an entire cart worth of sweets yeah. for him and Ron to share so i don't know it's just interesting because she's like you know i will accept this gift like thank you so much and mm-hmm. ron like can't which is understandable because yeah. of his issues but it does it really becomes a huge chip on ron's shoulder that kind of just doesn't go away pretty much the whole series yeah he kind of always has this weird relationship with um with money and i think there are positives to it i mean i think he his learning to come into his own a little bit and and be Mm self-reliant um and that's where it comes from is is wanting to be self-reliant um but to harry from harry's perspective it it comes off as like stubborn Mm -hmm. um because he's like ron i just want you to have this so that you can watch the game with me and we can Mm -hmm. enjoy this together you know i'm not like trying to give you charity right um but that's how ron feels about it and he also um like you said like this is what he has like he doesn't have anyone else to spend it on but like it's also kind of this thing i feel like for harry where he's like i don't have a family like i don't have parents like i can't like like you are giving me your family basically especially to ron and like i this is what i like can do and it kind of has to be Mm -hmm. like like maybe if like harry's parents were alive and their families were just friends like harry's parents would buy them this because they would have more money or something but he's like i have to do this because this is all i have like yeah maybe james and lily would be paying for their top box seats right instead of you know arthur getting them from ludo or whatever um i think we should talk about the um the tents and um the camping setup thing because i think it's it's kind of funny but it's also interesting um from the standpoint of mr weasley he asks Harry for help setting up the tents, but not Hermione. Mm-hmm. And as we're going to learn later on in, in book seven, um, Hermione is actually an expert camper. Yeah, she is. So how come she doesn't bring that up or or Mr. Weasley doesn't think of it? I feel like it's a typical sexist thing. Like people, you know, to this day, I'll be like, 
turn automatically to the boy to ask them to do a physical activity. Yeah, that's true. You know, and I feel like that would be a thing. And Mr. Weasley has only one daughter. Like, he's just used to that. But, um... And he's so cute, too, when he's trying to set up the tent. and mm-hmm. He's so excited. He's, like, really enthusiastic with the mallet. And and then Hermione is like, here, let me show you how to do it properly. Yeah. Um, and same thing with the matches later on when he's trying to start a fire. Um, Hermione comes and rescues him. So she is kind of showing him that she knows how to do this mm-hmm. stuff. But he's still, I think, yeah, in, in a slightly sexist way, um, thinks that Harry probably knows how to set up the tents mm-hmm. more. Whereas Harry's like, I wasn't like allowed outside. Yeah, I Harry's like, I've never <laughs> been camping before, and Hermione's there. She's probably like, Yeah, I've, I've been camping a bunch yeah. of times yeah. with my parents. We yeah. went like every summer. Yeah. Um, and you know, inside the tent is also speaking of Hermione. Like she in book seven when they're traveling, you know, her the tents that she makes are usually all different, but they're all like look really small and are huge inside and have like. I, I'm actually curious. I, we'll have to see if they are. See if this is the same tent. I I, oh, I wonder whether it might, it might be, be the same tent because I I feel like it was, and I'm not sure why oh, I think that. I think you're right. I think it you're might right. Be, like like I think because th- this one they borrowed it. from Arthur's coworker Perkins, who's got lower back pain and doesn't go camping anymore. But I feel like when they go off by themselves, they're just like, oh, I took Perkins' tent. I took Perkins' tent because he like never asked for it back, and it was just in the garage or something like mm-hmm. that. I feel like that happened. I'm not sure, though. We'll have to see. have to fact check. But, um, yeah, so it could be the same 10, but either way, it's like that's how they are living. And those are kind of the interiors that we have for a mm-hmm. lot of the um, seventh book. And so it's kind of a, a cool, like, foreshadow to that. Definitely. In the future. Um and we're also seeing other people's tents. So there's some fun descriptions of, like, the different styles and colors and magical mm-hmm. features that people do to their tents, which they're not supposed to do because they're supposed to be blending in. But um, we're seeing, like, kind of for the first time, like, an international wizard community. Yeah. And from Harry's perspective, which, you know, the most wizarding culture he's ever seen is Diagonally Diagon yeah. and Hogsmeade, I guess. Um, and Hogwarts to some extent. But this is really like an international wizarding culture that right. you're seeing on display. It's really fascinating. There's a lot of funny moments in this chapter um, of wizards trying to deal with the idea that they're supposed to be trying to look like muggles mm-hmm. um, and not being familiar with muggle culture in any way. Uh, and and there's a lot of just really cool imagery of, you know, there's American witches. Mm-hmm. There's like African wizards roasting a rabbit on a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, you know unattentive parents who like let their kids yeah. play with wands when they're not looking um and then there's like very patriotic irish and bulgarian wizards um showing off their support for their teens i mean it's it's fascinating and this is really one of the only times we see the wizarding world on an international scale yeah um, pretty much it is the only time and um especially in a like not in a workplace setting like just in a gathering of mm-hmm. people and it's sort of I, I pictured it like a music festival or like yeah. sort of Burning Man or like something where there's like a lot of people coming together celebrating. It doesn't happen very often. doesn't happen like every year. Yeah. Um, right. Like I've never been to a World Cup soccer mm-hmm. thing, but I imagine it's it's probably something yeah, like that. Yeah. And this is also like we can imagine too because we're like, oh, it's like the game and the game's at in the evening and they're kind of getting ready. It's like tailgating basically. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's like a giant wizard tailgate yeah. from all over the world. <laughs> Sounds fun, honestly. Yeah, I'd go to that. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Bagman and Crouch. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. 
If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the bet between Fred and George and Bagman, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we zoom in with our omnioculars to Chapter 8, the Quidditch World Cup. (laughs) I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.